1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Professor Toby Stein, who is a professor emerita in the Department of Theatre at the City University of New York, about her new book, Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Performing Arts Workforce. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Dave, for having me.
1: Um, This is a great book, and it's an incredibly well-timed book as well, uh, which is Um, In in some ways, kind of lucky considering how long it takes um, for academic books to get written and and to to go through the publishing process. But also, I think it it sort of speaks to the much longer term issues that that the book is grappling with, uh, the problems or the questions uh, of diversity in in, in the performing arts have been with us for a long time and and, and sadly kind of continue uh, to stay with us as well. And, and the place to really introduce the book is with that long-term set of issues. And, and the impression I get is that the long-term nature of, uh, of the problems in the workforce are what's motivated you to uh, to write this book.
0: Absolutely. 20 years ago, I wrote a journal article with the title Creating Opportunities for People of Colour in Performing Arts Management, which explored the reasons for the underrepresentation of performing arts managers of color in the nonprofit performing arts workforce in the United States. And at that time, the independent sector reported that 8.8% of the cultural workforce was black and 6.5% of the workforce was Latino. There was no additional data for other cultural groups. 20 years later, the cultural workforce numbers, sadly, are not representative of the U.S. population, where approximately 60% identify as white, non-Latino, and 40% identify as people of color. Depending on which art study you look at, the numbers are grim, Dave, concerning the degree to which the cultural workforce is racially representative of the U.S. population. Let me take you through two national studies concerning segments of the cultural nonprofit workforce. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau, of the more than 2 million artists working in the United States during the period 2006 to 10, more than 78% identify as white, non-Latino, nearly 6% identify as Black or African-American, non-Latino, more than 8% identify as Latino, and more than 5% identify as Asian. The next study conducted by Antonio C. Kyler from Florida State University, he studied racial and ethnic diversity among arts management arts managers in the United States and found that 78% of nonprofit arts managers identify as Caucasian or white American, 6% identify as black or African American, 7% identify as Chicano, Hispanic, or Latino American, and 3% identify as Asian American. So over the past 20 years, since I wrote that journal article, so very little has changed within the demographic makeup of the U.S. nonprofit cultural workforce. Furthermore, in a qualitative study that I did on leadership in 2014, I found that the idea of diversity and the social action needed to dismantle social injustice in the performing arts workforce are not aligned. In 2015, I felt compelled to conduct a more in-depth, qualitative study with members from a multiplicity of cultural backgrounds who work in the performing arts sector. And I invited 76 individuals to participate in in in-depth interviews. Each participant was asked to self-identify with regard to their race and or ethnic heritage. Additional survey questions focused on definitions and discussions around the state of racial and ethnic diversity in U.S. nonprofit performing arts organizations, as well as white privilege and its effect on the recruitment process in historically white performing arts organizations. The book I wrote examines the systemic and institutional barriers as well as individual biases that continue to perpetuate a predominantly white nonprofit performing arts workforce in the United States the research explicitly uncovers the sociological as well as the psychological reasons for an equitable workforce policies and practices within the historically white performing arts sector. And it provides examples of the ways in which transformative leaders sharing a multiplicity of cultural backgrounds can, collect, can collectively and collaboratively create and produce a culturally plural, community-centred workforce in the performing arts?
1: I mean, we're, we're going to unpack uh, much of, of that data, I think, over the course of, of our discussion. Uh, I think particularly in terms of uh, some of the barriers um, and then also, you know, what, might be good uh, examples, even within uh, a quite constrained uh, situation, but I, I think it 's also worth doing a little bit of ground clearing both about the book uh, and actually about um, the context in in which you wrote it so uh, one of the things that i 'm um, sure you 're keen to highlight is um, how you worked with um, collaborators on on the book um, you know both i I guess to kind of reflect their um expertise and and you know to um to add to yours um and I wonder if um uh, you could say a little bit about maybe this kind of process of working collaboratively on uh, on this book
0: absolutely it was very important to include scholars and practitioners from a multiplicity of racial and ethnic backgrounds so that I had diverse perspectives within the book and each person brought something really transformative uh, to the book itself. The foreword is written by Antonio C. Kyler, who is an associate professor of arts administration and the coordinator of the MA program at Florida State University, where he teaches doctoral and master's students. Emma Halpern, who wrote The History of Discrimination in the Performing Arts, is a dramaturg and an arts journalist. She served six years as the co artistic director of the New York City Children's Theater and is a regular contributor to American Theater Magazine. Bria Heidelberg teaches arts administration. She's also a consultant and a researcher. She is the program director of the entertainment and arts management program at Drexel University. And within the book wrote a compelling article called Teaching Culturally Responsive Performing Arts Management in Higher Education. And finally, from the UK, Abid Hussain, who wrote the article, The Public Funders Impact on Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Arts, is Director of Diversity at Arts Council England, the National Development Agency for arts and culture in england
1: i mean it's it's a great um set of uh, of collaborators you'd you'd assembled and, and actually we we might um pick up in in particular on uh on that final chapter the the discussion of uh the role of of teachers and and, and teaching um but before we get anywhere near that um the the other thing i mentioned about the context for the book is the broader discussion um, of, I guess, the uh, political and uh, and social uh, issues around race in America, because the performing arts is not, uh, and, and your book makes this really clear, is not a kind of unique uh, area of, of American life that's somehow um, separated off uh, from the, the broader um, American social system. And I guess uh, where the analysis starts and where the uh, understanding of, of people's experiences in, in the performing arts is with this uh, broader social and political context of race in the States.
0: Absolutely. We can go right back to the beginning of the formation of the United States the and look at the law system, the legal system, the early laws of the United States were steeped in white supremacy. For example, the 1790 Naturalization Act restricted U.S. citizens to, quote, any alien being a free white person, end quote. The Indian Appropriation Act of 1871 stated, quote, No Indian nation or tribe within a territory in the United States will be acknowledged or recognized as an independent nation or a tribe or a power with whom the U.S. may contract by treaty, end quote. By the way, it was not until 1978 that the Indian Child Welfare Act gave Native American parents the legal right to deny their children's placement in off-reservation schools. Going on, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act barred Chinese residents living in the United States from becoming U.S. citizens. During World War II, the United States forced Japanese residents living here in the United States into internment camps, and two-thirds of those Japanese residents were United States citizens during our Great Depression, two million people of Mexican heritage were deported. The majority were United States citizens and Jim Crow laws in southern United States states began almost 100 years of segregation in education, employment, housing, freedom of assembly and voting rights for black Americans.
1: So that's, I guess, a a flavor of some of the ways that even um, going right the way back through the United States history, we've got these questions of racial inequality. Where does this play out in in performing arts? Um, You've mentioned the statistics in terms of the unrepresentativeness uh, of the performing arts workforce, but how do some of these broader social and political contexts play out um, in the American performing arts system?
0: Well, thank you for asking that question. Mm. Let's first take a look at Native American representation in the cultural workforce in Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles has the second largest Native American population in the United States, but only 0.4% of the cultural workforce identifies as indigenous. Race-based programming during Black History Month in February shows a lack of respect and regard for Black cultural contributions, which must be recognized throughout the year because Black American history is our history. Also, respondents of color note that they are not part of the homogenous white networks, which are often formed in college or before, and which feed the primarily white performing arts workforce. In addition, people of color often feel stereotyped for certain types of performing arts roles. For example, Directors of color often feel as though they are excluded from directing plays by white playwrights. And finally, microaggressions in the workplace are also rampant for people of color, such as being questioned about their academic credentials and workplace
1: achievements. I was really struck by um I suppose we think of it as the kind of um the experiential um elements um of, of what the book tries to do to, to kind of show not just how these um, structural problems that you've you've outlined give us the uh workforce imbalances. Um, but also how they are, they're they kind of like lived. And I was really struck by a phrase, um, I think it's in the third chapter, um, when individuals would talk about being the only, you know, being the only one um, in an institution. And, and I wonder if you could sort of talk me through that phrase or, or maybe unpack it a little as, as a way of uh, giving a sense of kind of um, the experiences of, of some of your interviewees.
0: So primarily white organizations in the performing arts sector may hire a single person of color to give an impression that they value racial diversity. And when hired, the person of color may be made to feel as though he or she is expected to be the representative of his or her entire race as well as multiple races and ethnicities. So given that burden, it's impossible to be one's authentic self in primarily white organizations, as well as to bring one's entire self to work in a culture that does not value a multiplicity of perspectives. Also, stereotype threat is a problem where a person of color is afraid that his or her behaviors may confirm the stereotypes white people already have. So rather than share ideas and solutions, the person of color may choose to remain. Silent,
1: And how does that play out in terms of um, opportunities um, and in terms of unequal uh, career pathways? I guess one of the the classic excuses institutions make is, you know, we don't get applicants or, uh, you know, it's a qualifications thing or, you know, we are trying because as as you describe in the book, we've made one higher. Um, but what do those, um, I suppose, um, barriers to being oneself and, uh, and to fully participating in, in an institution mean in terms of um, career pathways in performing arts?
0: The career pathway that you mention is an informal process in getting a job and it's based on educational and employment opportunities coupled with mentoring from teachers, parents, and friends, and colleagues as well. Career pathway barriers in the performing arts can be found along the pathway, beginning with one socioeconomic neighborhood And in your neighborhood, there may not be very much funding allocated if you are deemed a high-poverty school district. Barriers can also be found in early education and training. For example, to what extent does a school have after-school programs dedicated to the arts? dedicated to instrument distribution? To what extent are there mentors and teachers of color to guide students of color in their pursuit of an arts career? And then in higher education, to what extent are students of color recruited into arts programs within higher education? And also, once you get there, once you get to college, to what degree is there culturally responsive education? To what extent are there mentors of color to guide students in the pursuit of a a performing arts career and the degree to which there are paid internships that actually pay a living wage? White... Homogeneous career networks are a barrier when there is no attempt to expand boundaries to include people of color. Recruitment barriers are found also in advertising language, the selection of advertising outlets, as well as hiring executive recruiters without. A track record in hiring candidates of color? And if a person of color is hired, to what extent is he or she intentionally retained in the organization? Are there professional development programs and mentors to guide and support them within the organization? To what extent are people of color asked for their opinions and leadership? Within the organization? And how are microaggressions called out and dealt with in the organization?
1: These sort of structural barriers, uh, which again, I think the book illustrates really well with both the interview data and and, and its broader engagement with the literature, are really what would be the word, you know, are are quite sort of depressing in in terms of. how we might respond to them, um, whether as educators, as researchers, or, or as people involved in institutions, but also how we need to take them seriously as, as structures. And, I mean, what one thing the book does towards the end of the book in, in, in the last couple of chapters is think about what effective change might look like, what it might be. Um, and I think uh, the book strikes the balance quite well between um, saying what, structural issues are what some effective changes might be, but to make us aware that, you know, these effective changes uh, really do need institutions to be taking um, the scale of, of the task seriously. And I guess this question about effective change is, is one way to uh, begin to, to wrap up our discussion. So um, w- what sort of things can organisations do, even though, you know, I, I think, keeping them aware of uh, the scale of the problem is crucial.
0: Okay, so Ria Heidelberg talks about culturally responsive education in in higher education, and she deals with um, asking teachers to change or think about changing the way they teach. Culturally responsive courses where all all of the students' cultural experiences and perspectives are the lens through which the course may be taught. And here are the questions to ask when creating a culturally responsive syllabus or curriculum. To what degree is there a Eurocentric bias in the arts curriculum? And how does it affect the students' understanding of themselves and their cultural identities in relationship to the field? To what extent does white privilege shape the current curriculum of the arts programs? To what degree does the historically white profession shape the current curriculum? How and why must we engage and train more professors to teach access, diversity, equity, and inclusion or A-D-E-I in arts programs? How does the university's consideration of ADEI affect the success of ADEI curricular changes within arts programs in higher education. To what degree should ADEI and social justice be embedded into the entire curriculum as opposed to one dedicated course? to what degree does the diversity of the faculty affect the success of ADEI within the curriculum? Furthermore, how do you create a safe space for a multiplicity of voices in the classroom? How do you handle conflict or triggers in the classroom? How do you handle your own triggers? How do you foster and facilitate intergroup dialogue? Within a social justice framework, what methods do you use to examine issues of justice, of injustice in the personal lives of students, within performing arts institutions, within communities of color, as well as interrelationships among them? How do you connect analysis to action? How do you prepare the students to become ADEI change agents? What teaching methods, what exercises do you use to promote a learning community within the classroom? How do you examine bias? How do you incorporate student-centered narratives and their experiences? How do you create affinity groups where people of same backgrounds can get together and discuss their own identities and their own barriers to success?
1: In terms of your own work, this book, I guess, could be seen as a, a sort of a, um, a response to that paper 20 years ago um and i mean i should say you know we've we've just given a flavor of of the book during this conversation um but um what are your sort of hopes of the book in terms of um do you think uh the book will see those questions answered on um arts management and, and and theater courses in the states um are you thinking in terms of the need to do further research work or what what would you think would be the next uh, the next steps um, after this book?
0: I thank you, Dave. I've already had the pleasure of uh, teaching classes at two universities in the United States since the book has been published and sharing um, the ideas of the of the book and the intention of the book with students from, again, a multiplicity of of cultural backgrounds. And the students have asked me questions. And uh, in one case, Bria Heidelberg and I uh, co-taught the class and it was just, it was extraordinary to be engaging um, on this topic about access, equity and inclusion within not only the the performing arts workforce, but in their everyday lives and what the students could do personally to begin to engage in social action within the university and the questions they can ask when they intern in primarily white organizations. And I hope to do a lot more of uh, teaching and engaging with students as well as colleagues from a multiplicity of backgrounds and universities that feel that this topic is imperative to the future of a healthy workforce and a healthy society.